the podcast. Uh, this month we have a very exciting podcast lined up. We're going to do um, kind of a, a well-known title actually, um, going by this kind of stuff that we, we look at on the pod. Uh, so we're doing Diamonds Are Forever and we're talking about James Bond, but with a focus on costume design and fashion. And this month we have a very special guest, Dr. Luella Chapman. Uh, Luella has just published a book on costume and the James Bond franchise. Uh, so we're going to talk to Luella a bit later and we are going to kind of um, get all sorts of really interesting information on fashion and costume and James Bond. Um, it's mm. just such a fabulous franchise for kind of it anything is. fashion related, clothing related. Um, and yeah, Diamonds, not, not, it's kind of like a left field choice, I think, for James Bond. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's reg it regularly comes up as like, people's favorite example of Bond, but I know that Luella really likes it and I really, really enjoy it. I think it's just, mm. yeah, it's full of camp hilarity. Uh, what about you, Adrian? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not top tier Bond, but I think every Bond film, if, I mean, if I suppose it depends on how you feel about Bond films in general, but if you're a Bond fan, there's something to get out of all of them, even the ones that are maybe not quite so good. I mean, it's interesting picking this one from a fashion point of view because this one as i'm sure i will mention later it looks so 70s it's like you can definitely tell we've hit the 70s with this one um and not necessarily in a completely good way <laughs> it is very sort of it does seem very sort of dated but i think actually it's less the fashion that makes it 70s and more the sort of um like camp comedy elements of it hmm and the attitude towards uh, homosexual hitmen. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Wind and Mr. Kid. Yeah. Um, they are yeah, a delightfully creepy Jew. They are. And uh, one of those guys, which one is it, Wint or Kid? I think it's Mr. Wint. He's Crispin Glover's dad. Do you know Crispin Glover? Uh, actor. He's in Back to the Future. He's oh, right, yeah. Mar Marty's dad. Okay, I did not know that. His dad. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, fun fact. Um, but yeah, I like. There's a lot of stuff to like. There's a, some great designs. All the the kind of villains, penthouse lair, in Las Vegas is all very Ken Adams. It's very kind of Goldfinger. Those huge giant sets and stuff. It, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. And um, it is the bond where we get to see Blofeld and the White Cat. Um, and the sort yeah. of <clears throat> the whole kind of uh, the caricatureiness of Bond, you know, the Bond villain. Um, you know, Doctor Evil is based on Blofeld in this film, so mm -hmm. it's just it's just kind of ripe for parody. Um, maybe yeah. it's like one of the the you know the Bond film, one of the Bond films in the series where it just edges more into parody and more into caricature. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a good point. L Luella says in her book that I think it was after this film that Charles Gray was cast in the Rocky Horror movie and you can sort of see how there's a there's a fairly clear link if somebody's looking for for a guy to be in rocky horror and then they see this they're like there you go that's our guy and there's a mo he, he, he his performance is almost like he's in a pantomime like there is nothing about this villain that is the slightest bit threatening or villainous or scary in any way at all yeah <laughs> not really and the um I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do with, um, pant there's a lot of pantomime elements because of the sort of idea of disguise. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that there's like, 
I mean, this is kind of a spoiler, but I feel like the statute of limitations has oh, passed on yeah, this one. You know, Blofeld's, Blofeld has uh, doubles. Um, mm. And this idea of uh, kind of mixed, swapping identities and having doubles is very sort of pantomime isn't it? Yeah, and it's interesting that we, we start with the pre-credit sequence where Bond kills Blofeld, so he thinks, because he's getting revenge on his wife being killed by Blofeld at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, they just bring Blofeld back, and then he kills him again. And then I think he's, I think he like kills Blofeld about three times in this movie, because there are so many Blofelds. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which I suppose to go back to what you said about Austin Powers, maybe that's where the sort of mini me comes from, because you've got Blofeld with, and he's got other Blofelds that seem to hang around with him. Yeah. Which is sort of weird. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah. yeah I don't know. Uh, so um, but yeah, did you did you grow up watching Bond? Was that something that you did as a kid, or have you come to it later? I think we all kind of did, didn't we? I mean, I grew up mm. watching sort of yeah. You'd see these things on kind of ITV and ITV two, um, so mm-hmm. it was always kind of there. Uh, in the background, I don't think it was kind of something particularly my family tended to watch. When it comes to when it came to British cinema, I think we were more about like the Carry On films. Um, <laughs> but to be honest, I mean, looking into this from a sort of British historian perspective, there is actually similarities between how the Carry On films are made and how the Bond films are made. Mm. Um, just at the level of like, you know, they they would tend to use a lot of the same crew for each production. They would tend yeah. to want to keep it like under budget as one of the key things. Um, and you know, James Bond has more of an inter- more international credentials than like the Carry On series. But essentially, these are both franchises with lots. Haven't of you lots seen of Carry On Abroad? <laughs> well, I I don't think it's quite the same thing. <laughs> I think that the Bond franchise has kind of outlasted the Carry On franchise, but they're both, yeah, rooted mm. in the sort of 60s. Um, they have this kind of franchise model of production. And actually, they tend to be big box office winners each year. Mm. Um, and also, uh, I mean, did uh, and there's kind of, did Carry On try to parody Bond? Yeah, there was a Carry On Spying. Yes, Carry On Spying. Yeah, mm. so there were all these kind of Bond parodies in the 60s. And actually, maybe those Bond parodies kind of, like Our Man Flint. Did you ever see that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, by the mid to late 60s, Bond was being kind of endlessly parodied in pop culture anyway. So maybe they're mm. just kind of, Diamonds Are Forever is kind of leaning into that a little bit. It's kind of leaning yeah. into the parody elements of it. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point about the, the similarities. Obviously, carry, the carry-ons um, were also shot at Pinewood. Yeah, which is you know, the home of Bond. So there's probably some, there's probably crossovers with uh, sets and stuff as well because the carry-ons were doing everything on the cheap mm-hmm. and using every possible angle of Pinewood Studios and the back lot that they could get their hands on. So the, I know um, the big I've forgotten the name of it the, the big white house that's in Pinewood Studios that was used in The Great Gatsby mm-hmm. and you see that dressed up at various points in Bond films to be different locations and the carry-ons have used it so so even sort of visually there's probably a few actors as well isn't there who've been in both oh i would i don't yeah. know I, I mean i don't have enough detailed knowledge to know that no. <laughs> yeah. and i, I think suppose, it's likely yeah and you could also look at the um the sort of criticisms of the films uh of sort of you know misogyny and 
um, sexism and things that, that the, the accusations that get thrown at the Bond films quite a lot. Mm. I suppose you could equally apply to some of the bits of uh, the Carry On films too. Oh, if, I if think you, you want, could, yeah. If you I mean, I don't think to. you'd have to look very far, Adrian, no. uh, in order to do no. that, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that's the trouble with looking at everything from the sort of 21st century lens, <laughs> isn't it? Stuff I, mean, I, think, I think even at the time, years old. to be fair. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you grow up watching Bond? Are you a Bond fan, Adrian? Yeah, it was a thing, I guess. Again, it was mainly my dad, I suppose. And he took me to the cinema to see... Um, I think it was, which one was the, was it The Living Daylights? I think the first, uh, the Timothy Dalton Bond. We were very excited when that came out. Went to see that on my birthday. Uh, I think I was 11, 10 or 11. Very uh, excited. Because yeah. I, I forget that you are older than me an, because an old, you old look man. younger than me. I know uh, <laughs> listeners can't see you, but uh, you'll see things like, oh yeah, I, I went, I did beard. a thing when I was, you know, old enough to yeah. walk and talk in like the yeah. 70s, <laughs> <laughs> the early 70s. Yeah. I mean, because, I, you know, I always said that, I've always said that Moonraker is my favorite Bond because I saw it probably when I was about five or six. So not when it first came, I was only two when it came out, but obviously I think when it was on its TV, like you said, sort of ITV would often have these things and anything to do with space because I was always watching Star Wars and all of that stuff. So so yeah, and, and you know the, the Bond films, like the carry-ons as well, I guess similarly, I would watch those all the time because they were always on ITV on a Saturday afternoon as well. So, so yeah, um, I think if you've grown up in the UK, you've probably been exposed to Bond from an early age. I know my children have as well, so it goes on. It continues with the new generation. Yeah, I think the first Bond film I saw at the cinema was actually Casino Royale. The new, oh. the Daniel Craig one, not the 1967 uh, yes. one. Yes. Do you know, I, yeah, no. I've still never, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen that, the 60s Casino Royale. I know I've seen bits of it, but I don't know if I ever watched it all the way. Uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a... I should. A testament to 60s ridiculousness, campness and mm. excess. Um, it's got the most, one of, a film with a lot of directors and uncredited writers. And more directors yeah. on a film is definitely never a good thing. No. <laughs> so it was a bit of a mess. But I suppose it came, like you were saying about the sort of, how the Bond film, about Diamonds Are Forever is sort of tipping into almost parodying itself because of all those other parodies that were happening and that casino royale in 67 comes right at the height of bond spoof mania mm -hmm. not only because obviously you've got also got all the european films all the kind of european um spy movies that were there were literally hundreds of those so I mean, it's almost a surprise that the bond films didn't just give up because everybody was just taking the mick and like how do they how do they keep going through that without just becoming comedy themselves it's, well sort of a miracle that they survived i think i uh, yeah how did they because you know carry mm -hmm. on didn't make it out of the 70s because the no. sexual politics of it and the fact that sex you know double entendres just oh, weren't no. funny anymore um no. didn't kind of outlast that era but roger no. Moore made it out of the 70s uh, That's true. as james bond <laughs> well into the 80s yeah and i suppose his films i think um you know this diamonds are forever is pretty funny and there are some pretty terrible double entendres in this film which wouldn't have been out of place in a Roger Moore Bond. I mean, the man, obviously Roger Moore, whose own name is a double entendre. It is. The day um, I realised that, um, yeah, it was a very funny moment sense. for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, It's too perfect. Yeah. 
But no, I, I mean, I love all the Bond movies, even the ones that people don't like. Um, there'll be things to enjoy. Um, and it's also a film franchise that you can sort of watch with the family, even if some of the jokes are a bit risky. So what did you think of the more recent one? Oh, I liked it. I know it's received a lot of criticism for being too serious and all that, but you know, the action scenes were good and I don't know. I thought it was fine. I, <laughs> I thought it was fine. High praise. Yeah. I, I mean, Skyfall is still my favourite one. Of all the Daniel Craigs, I think Skyfall is the best one. But I think of the Daniel Craig ones, I think Casino Royale is probably my mm. favourite. Maybe it's because yeah. it was the first one I saw in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to some of the Pierce Brosnan ones. I watched uh, Goldeneye and yeah. maybe it's because I watched it in 2020 um, as opposed mm. to back when I just didn't really see the fuss. I thought I didn't yeah I thought it was okay (laughs) yeah they're a bit clunky the Pierce Brosnan ones Uh, they they drag a bit I think especially Die Another Day that one's just terrible (laughs) but again there's still some cool stuff there's some good car chases (laughs) so um, I really love the theme song some of the Bond theme songs I absolutely love Mm -hmm. and one of my very favourites are uh, the theme tune for Diamonds Are Forever Mm. Um, because yeah so they uh, I mean, it's very double entendre as a, as a kind of yes. theme song as well, isn't it? If you listen to the lyrics. Yeah. They brought back um, Shirley Bassey mm-hmm. this time. I guess they were really trying to recapture the, the formula that they had because Honor Majesty's Secret Service had been given such a kicking. So they kind of brought back all the Bond greatest hits from the 60s and it made sense to bring Shirley Bassey back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a great theme. Really, um, really good. I mean, one of my my favourite Bonds, probably on Her Majesty's Secret Service, is kind of tied mm. with A View to a Kill, only because I've been watching that a lot recently and I love the outfits. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one as well for costumes. Yeah, it's interesting how On Her Majesty's Secret Service has, it, it received a massive kicking at the time, and so Lazenby said, well, forget that, I'm not going to do any more of those. But now it is generally considered to be really, really good, and he's very good in it. Um, I went to a, a Q&A with him years ago, George Lazenby, where he was telling stories about his time on that film. And it was in the middle of the day. There were people there with children. And he was most of his stories were just about how all the people he'd had sex with on the set. <laughs> and so during the Q&A, you just kept seeing dads getting up with their kids and leaving. It was oh, funny. my God, guy, read the room. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah it's funny how these things are reevaluated, right? Because like Diamonds mm. Are Forever was the second highest grossing film of 1971, and it was generally mm. really well reviewed. Like people said, mm. at last we're returning to the elements of what makes the Bond franchise great. And now, I mean, today I don't think it is particularly well regarded, is it? No, no, it's yeah, it's, and I don't know what it is exactly. I think maybe it's because he looks a bit too old now, although he's obviously still younger than Roger Moore, I think. He's, um, yeah. I mean, roughly. he's pretty or, young. If you like, relatively. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but Roger he, he Moore looks... was looking very. He was looking like a pensioner by the time yes. *A View to a Kill* came out. Uh, <laughs> it was even he said, "Look, this is a bit much." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. Um, yeah, but so I don't know what else. What else we can say? Do you have a particular favorite moment or scene or action? or anything I don't know from from the movie uh I mean I I kind of love Winton Kidd 
Mm. I think that that bit with the bomb in the ghetto, um, mm. that bit with the yeah. kind of the the fight bomb, scene, bomb surprise um, in the hotel, <laughs> bomb surprise, and yeah. um, the fact that you know he's uh, he's kind of Winton Kidder kind of going for Bond, and then um, Tiffany Case is sort of just just cowering in the corner, and I'm just like you know yeah. just do something <laughs> don't just yeah. stand there and then I, she chucks um, the cake and it just um it's yeah. when he grabs he grabs uh is it winter could i get them confused he, he gives him uh, a wedgie and shoves him out the window uh, and then he explodes yeah. like that is oh, that is absolutely fucking ridiculous i love it yeah. <laughs> i i did just in preparation for this i just i did just read the novel as well to see um how they compare and in the book uh wint and the kid are a little bit more sinister than in this one they're not quite so again this one's a little bit more sort of pantomime um in the book they're they're quite sinister and seem to be working to their own agenda just sort of killing off everybody along this chain of uh diamond smugglers not necessarily following any rules they're kind of weird characters but but yeah they're much more serious in the book i kind of like that they are a bit more camp in the film. yeah i like the bit when he meets bambi and thumper Oh wow! Yeah. In in that sort of cliff top modernist, I don't know what it is like brutalist holiday house. It's a pretty. Co- I love that whole house. It's really cool, and then and the the Bambi and Thumper stuff just r- reminded me again. It feels like something out that Roger Moore would come up against later on, and which I'm mm. sure we did. Um, stuff like that. Good job with four thousand. Thank you. Hi, I'm Plenty. But of course you are. Plenty of two. Named after your father, perhaps. Would you like some help? On the craps, I mean. It's very kind of you. I'm very pleased to introduce to the podcast today uh, Dr. Luella Chapman. Uh, so Luella is a fellow uh, British film historian. Uh, her work looks at, um, she uses a lot of kind of archive resources and her work looks specifically at um, issues around kind of film financing, but she's also looked at uh, a fashion in film as well, um, particularly in the Bond franchise. So Luella's book, Costuming uh, James Bond, has just come out. Um, and she has also done a BFI classics book on From Russia With Love. Uh, so like two really cool uh, recent books on fashion, which is unusual because, you know, as we'll talk about in the pod, you know, fashion is one of those things that tends to get ignored, I think, in, in film scholarship. Um, so uh, yeah, really fab to have you on, Luella. Um, and the film that we've chosen, I mean, you chose the film Diamonds Are Forever because you said that it was one of your, that it's one of your favorite Bond films or it's your favorite Bond film. So I'm interested to find out more about why it's your favorite Thanks, Laura. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh, do let me know if I ramble on too much about, uh, you know, fashioning James Bond, but also uh, Diamonds Are Forever, because I think we, you know, we could be here 24 hours. Might just make for too much of a little bit of a long podcast for listeners. That's okay. We can can split it into in half. It'd be fine. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I did say, uh, I said, uh, costuming james bond as the title of your book not fashioning i promise i have read it twice <laughs> it's, it's just it's just brain fail <laughs> so, sorry about that it's fine it's fine costume is in the title so it is it is yeah, it's it was, fine yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah i mean why why your favorite then diamonds because uh, i'm always interested in 
why people have their kind of favorite Bond films. It seems like quite an unusual choice. It's like kind of a camp mm. classic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's for me, uh, I just love the film. I think it's just really fun, um, you know, and in it, you know, Sean Connery, it's he sort of come back after leaving um, the franchise after You Only Live Twice. And then they go with George Lazenby for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then because uh, Lazenby leaves at the end of that production, um, there's kind of suggestions as to, OK, well, we might need a, a new James Bond. But it's United Artists who very much want Connery to come back, uh, given the success of You Only Live Twice and his other Bond films, um, particularly for consistency, because they were concerned about having, you know, um, too much change in the franchise um, to employ an, another new, unknown, untested actor. So they managed to lure Connery back for a very expensive uh, fee. Um, and what's actually quite interesting with the film is it's, it's one of the few Eon Productions bomb films that actually keeps to time in terms of production, um, mm. mainly because they don't want to have to pay Connery his overage mm. if he works past five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so, you know, it is quite funny. And for all of the film's flaws, and yes, there are flaws in terms of, you know, uh, the making of the film uh, and having to cut scenes out uh, from the original script that was developed for it. Um, I just think it's fun, you know, um, just comparing it with the latest uh, Bond film, No Time to Die, um, which I have to say I was very mixed about as a film. Mm. You know, I, I didn't find that film fun, whereas Diamonds mm. is fun and you laugh yeah. and you enjoy it, you know. And just in terms of the costume and fashion as well, I mean, I'd actually argue Majesty's probably is the best in terms of costume and fashion, Ooh, yeah. in terms of the richness of the clothes. And of course, you've got, you know, a view to the view to a kill where you've got Grace Jones and, you know, all the wonderful fashion that she wears. But I just think Diamonds is really intelligent in the way they use costume and fashion, uh, particularly in terms of characterization. Um, but also there's some really interesting things in the script as well uh, that Tom Mankiewicz writes, you know, and the, the kind of change of the wigs uh, for Tiffany Case mm. to St. John, which is developed on from Fleming's novel, of course. But, you know, it, it's just really clever in the way that, that that sort of fashion interplay goes about and the different kind of, you know, lines and costume quips, you know, mm -hmm. provided the collars and the cuffs match, which, of course, yeah. is in the end, but just really good fun fashion costume you end up going on as well you know so yeah yeah it's a I love the um it's a great fashion film because of the yeah just the campness of it but the disguises so uh the yeah. wigs um <laughs> but also Blofeld having doubles yeah. and his ridiculous kind of uh you know fascist outfit <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his, it's so funny his drag yes oh yeah he's in drag, drag as well yeah, yeah. God. I do love that, you know, and, and when he sits in the car and look what the cat drags in, you know. <laughs> you know it's just a camp and I love Charles Grey. He's my favourite Blofeld of the series. The, this is the, in terms of costumes, I think this one really feels like we've hit the 70s. When you, when you sort of look back at the 60s bombs, there's a bit more of a sort of, I don't know, a little bit more of a, I don't know, timeless quality to them. They feel they feel less dated, I would say, than this one, where suddenly we're in sort of safari suits and huge collars, and it, this one does feel much more like we're in the seventies now. Is that yeah. one of the reasons why you like it? Um, 
think I, I like it for its campness and its kitschness. I think as well, what's interesting with this film is it's basically a Roger Moore Bond film, but without Roger Moore, isn't it? So you mentioned mm. the safari suits and the and flares and things like that, you know. But interestingly, unlike Roger Moore, no one really complains in the same way of, of Connery or other characters wearing very sort of 70s style clothing um, as you get with, with Roger Moore. Um, so, yeah, so it's just interesting. Um that but I just wonder as well if people sort of skip past that because the ones that are wearing safari suits and stuff are, are Winton Kid, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, the two mm-hmm. gay henchmen, and I think the treatment of them is, is very interesting in the script, um, and also in the, the reception of the film as well. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, but I, I do like its 70ths, you know, <laughs> it's it's what makes it a particularly culty Bond film, which I know this mm-hmm. podcast you know deals with talking about, yeah. Yes, I guess it's 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 an unloved Bond film. I would say when you know people don't talk about this film in the same breath that they might talk about Goldfinger or something like that. This that's why I thought it was an interesting choice, and I enjoyed reading what you had to say in your book about the the, the clothing and everything in this one. But yeah, in, in terms of Bond movies, nobody would normally pick this one as their favorite. Although, having said that, I always say that Moonraker is my favorite. And that one is really hated by Bond fans. Yeah, but like, me, so, Adrian, you know. Adrian, our podcast is all about being contrarian <laughs> and liking exactly. things people don't like. So it kind of fits. That's true. <laughs> Moonmakers, I think Moonmakers is a fantastic film myself. I, I think it's beautiful to look at. And, and the mm. costumes as well, Jacques Fonteray's costume designs are, are fantastic. It's a very interesting film because, of course, it's an Anglo-French uh, production yeah. uh, for a Bond film too. So, you know, you've got some really interesting stuff. Mm. Um, but mm. yeah, it's interesting with Bond fans as to, you know, what what's, what they do to be really good and not so good, you know, and you're right, you know, Diamonds and Moonmaker and things. Poor Quantum of Solace, you know, gets yeah. a bit of a bashing. Piers Quantum of Solace. You know. yeah. I, I like Quantum, you know, unlike No Time to Die, which is way too long, Quantum of Solace is only, what, one hour and 40 minutes, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I um, I started out uh, 15 years ago or so writing for Cinema Retro magazine. And they, the guys that run that, very very Bond-heavy magazine, and they've done Bond books, and they're always talking about James Bond. And um, I've been to Bond conventions through them and met Bond people and stuff. So they're, they're very Bond-focused, but they all dismiss Moonraker and they treat me with disdain for, for saying that it's my favourite one. But I think it's because I was, I'm was i younger than them and I think I was the right age when I saw Moonraker to, to love all the space stuff rather than think, oh, this isn't James Bond, this is too silly. I thought it was fabulous and I loved Jaws and all of that stuff. I really so, like it. Um, yeah, so I think yeah. it just depends when you come into it. If you're... If you grew up watching Sean Connery, then maybe Roger Moore in space does seem too silly. But if you're sort of well, seven been... years old, it's fine. We, we mentioned um, Austin Powers. And of course, in Moonmaker, they've got a wonderful sort of Austin Powers-esque reference in that, haven't they? You know, where Drax is on the telephone about like hiring a henchman. It's like, oh, well, if you have him, you know, in relation to, to Jaws. So, you know, there's some wonderful mm. moments. Oh, no, I was just going to uh, circle back to costumes in diamonds, because one thing I really loved about your book, Luella, was how detailed it is. Like you've you you've detailed so much information about the production and also the 
you know, the suits that Bond wears. And I think you mentioned something about like his suits were cut in such a way as to make him look slimmer and more athletic, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> like, how did you find that out? <laughs> um, just really partly through sort of analysing the suits and on the screen and looking at the cut of them uh, and the shape of them and the style of them. And of course, Anthony Sinclair uh, tailored those suits as well uh, for Connery's Bond, as he did with the uh, five previous films that Connery did. So I could mm -hmm. compare uh, my analysis of those suits with the suits that Connery okay. had previously worn uh, and things like that. And of course, another good way um, for anyone out there that is interested in researching costume and fashion and film is there are a lot of auctions particularly at Christie's um mm. you know and also Bonhams where they do very detailed descriptions of the costumes they auction and quite a few of the Bond costumes have been auctioned so you can get little details um mm. sometimes labels even of, of sizes and things like that so you're able to to compare them um but yeah I think there's some there's some quite fun little jokes you can have with Connery suits mm. and uh, diamonds oh, in particular yeah. Yeah, you, you quote in the book from um, some contemporary reviews and mm -hmm. it seems like the fact that he was a bit older and a bit fatter than last time was something that most reviewers tended to comment on. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty consistent, yeah. You know, there's contemporaneously but, and also with hindsight as well. Um, you know, those those reviews, they, they are obsessed with those sorts of things. Um, the criticals of reception is always amusing to look at, I think, sometimes, you know. It's like that's where the Savile Row myth comes from, in part, you know, about Bond wearing Savile Row suits, you know, because, OK, yes, in Doctor No, there is mention explicitly of uh, Connery and Savile Row suits, which, of course, is inaccurate, and in their marketing, they sort of promote, oh, Connery's wearing a Savile Row suit, which he isn't. But um, in the critical reception, you know, um, I think it's News of the World, isn't it, that refers to Connery as, you know, fitting Fleming's hero like a Savile Row suit. And, you know, I mean, these, of course, these reviews of, of Dr. No, for example, so think Connery is, is Irish, you know, which is particularly interesting in terms of accents and, and kind mm. of understanding of accents. But, you know, well, so yeah, you've got some interesting, um, like... He's Scottish, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> Exactly. from Section G, <laughs> doesn't it? In uh, diamonds, it really comes out that shh yeah. that he does. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's because his his most well known role prior to Doctor No was in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. So yeah. maybe that's why people thought he was Irish. But yeah, it's a bit. Weird. There is that, and also you know American reviewers as well, and their ear for accents. Yeah, perhaps that's true. Someone to... <laughs> I did actually have a look to see how old Connery was when he made this film. And I was somewhat depressed to discover that he was five years younger than me. No, that can't Doctor, be true. In, in Diamonds Are Forever. How, like, how oh, old are you? Okay. How old are you, Adrian? Because you look about 29. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, I am in my mid-40s. Ah. So um, I'm well past the age that he was when he made this movie, where he's looking like an old man. He's not. <laughs> yeah, he's only, what, 40 in this? Uh, yeah. It's like 40. I think it was 41 when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but, well, you know, it, but it had a hard life. Uh, yeah, well, He I arguably guess. looks better and fitter and younger in uh, Never Say Never Again, which, of course, is, mm. is you know, the, the 80s film, Bond film yeah. they did. So it's it's interesting that, that sort of change in appearance and physique. Um, so, mm. I mean, it's kind of 
it's interesting that this is your um, favorite Bond, Luella, and it's Connery's last role. And also he was kind of made fun of for looking old because um, I think, I mean, my favorite film is probably Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but one of my, a close second is A View to a Kill. And Roger Moore, that was his last film. And he was, he was very old when he did that. He's probably in his fifties. And he looked it and he was sleeping with like very young, very young co-stars and it just seemed a bit grotesque. But that's also a super interesting fashion film as well with the Azadine Alaya 80s fashion designer doing the costumes for Grace Jones. So it's very camp and over the top. Um, I just kind of like that parallel. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Luella, what is like, you've obviously spent a lot of time in the archives, right? Um, researching uh, costume and fashion and researching British cinema history. So I, I kind of wanted to put you on the spot a little bit and just ask you, like, what is the funniest and or coolest thing you've found when just kind of hunting in the archives? Good question. It can relate to Bond or you know, maybe anything else, but just, yeah, what, uh, what really interesting things have you found? <laughs> okay, um... Lots is the answer, but I yeah. think probably um, the funnest, or one of the funnest findings at any rate, uh, was when I uh, went to the uh, West Yorkshire Archive Service, uh, which is based mm. just outside of, of Leeds, um, and very difficult to get to if you're using public transport as I did. You have to walk through a few muddy fields to get oh. there, but it was worth it um, <laughs> because there, what they have is the uh, Montague Burton collection. Um, now, in oh. the 60s, Montague Burton wanted to kind of um, cash in on the kind of bomb phenomenon that sort of really sprang up after the release of Goldfinger at the back end of 1964. And so what they did, uh, sort of March, April 1965, is um, they wanted to do a kind of brand tie-in with mm. the films and create their own kind of suit range. So they employed Anthony Sinclair as a sort of style consultant and they came up with these kind of different versions of, of Connery's uh, suits that he wore in the James Bond films. And there's some quite amusing quotations, um, you know, um, from Anthony Sinclair about, you know, how you can basically buy a, a 007 suit which will look like a suit that 007 wore for a day at least, you know, and, mm. and things like that. Um, but what's interesting, just looking at the kind of papers in that file, and there's a lot of press clippings and things like that, um, they actually pull the suit range, you know, by sort of November time, because they realise that it's not going to sell very well with the kind of testing that they've done and, and the marketing campaigns. And, you know, there's some really amusing comments um, from Lionel Jacobson, who's like the chairman of Montague Burton at the time, you know, saying things like, oh, we realise that men wouldn't want you know, suits with pockets for hand grenades in and stuff like that. So I thought that was really fun. You know, when you compare, it's really interesting, because when you compare it to other marketing strategies of other kind of luxury firms around this time, the French um, do a sort of tie-in with Goldfinger, and they have at Galleries Lafayette um, a Bond boutique, they called it, and that was actually quite successful. In Japan, they did similar things, and in America, and they were relatively successful as well. But I suspect it's because of when Goldfinger was released in those territories, they could tie it in, whereas like Montague Burton was sort of waiting quite a few months after Goldfinger had already been released. And then they sort of pulled the range before the next Bond film, Thunderball, came out at the end of, of 65. So there's no kind of Bond film to kind of hook on 
you know, persuading people to go in. And I think in all seriousness, you know, how many men of a certain age do really want, you know, uh, you know, suits with pockets for hand grenades in all seriousness. But <laughs> I mean, it, I it's quite interesting as well when you think about that today. I mean, yeah, so would I, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> when you think about it today, you see all these kind of very luxury brands, you know, because um, what you've got to remember as well with Montague Burton, it's a multiple menswear, you know, um, firm. It, you know, it's not necessarily seen as, you know, being your level of Savile Row or anything like that. But then, you know, today you've got all of our brown, haven't you, selling those very, very expensively priced swimming trunks with the kind of posters on them, you know, and you've got, they've replicated the Connery's toweling romper suit from Goldfinger for £350. And you do wonder who's buying this sort of yeah. luxury mm. branded James Bond tat, basically, because, <laughs> you know, presumably they are collectors. You know, I haven't seen anyone down the beach wearing or sporting these particular items of clothing, and perhaps for their price, that might explain why. Um, but you just wonder who they're aiming this at, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a replica, the official 007 website, you know, last year was, you know, um, promoting the limited edition octopusy nightgown that they made, and that was about £900, you know. So Ooh. you're not looking at the average here you're looking at you know the luxury fan market mm-hmm. so the I mean, if you go right back to the novels ian fleming goes into lots of detail on the costumes for a, pretty much every character that you meet in those books gets about a paragraph of description like he seemed to be really obsessed with how people looked and how they dressed and i know he was he considered himself a very well-dressed man as well when he, you know, he was pretty obsessed with how he looked. So that um, you mentioned earlier about how in the script, there's lots of costume description and you quote some of that in your book as well. So I guess I don't quite sure where I'm going with this, but um, the, the, the interest in costumes, it clearly comes from the novels originally, even if by the time the films were made, what they're wearing has changed with the times. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, what's interesting with Fleming's work, of course, is he he gives particularly beautiful and and vivid and rich description around the villain's clothes, particularly Drax is a good example in Moonraker, um, and the women's clothes, you know, usually with dresses with plunging Vs. Fleming's a big fan Mm. of plunging Vs, as he puts them. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting with Fleming, of course, is he doesn't really afford Bond any form of description in terms of his items of clothing in the novels you get little snippets like the i think it's the burberry raincoat mm-hmm. um major booth where he speaks in a voice uh, to bond it that's similar to the one his expensive tailor uses um but you know partly because they're written from bond's perspective the, these novels with the exception of uh, the spy who loved me of course um that's partly why we don't really receive much description of, of Bond's clothing because he's busy observing everyone else around him. Mm. Um, I mean, the clearest description of, of what Bond wears actually comes from it is Fleming's unnamed secretary. He writes to um, the to the Playboy magazine, the art director of the Playboy magazine to explain what he wears. So now whether Fleming dictated that, we're not sure. So, you know, whether mm. she, you know, just took inspiration from what she knew or whether Fleming dictated that letter, I'm not sure. But you know, that's quite interesting. But in relation to what you were saying about the scripts, certainly um, where they are adapting the script from the novels, 
there's a lot of description that's lifted directly uh, from how Fleming describes the clothes, um, particularly if Richard Maybaum's uh, writing the script, I've noticed. Um, and Laura, you mentioned Majesties earlier on. You know, there's a lot of the kind of costume description from that Maybaum lifts in there, including Tracy's mm -hmm. kind of uh, pink Parker coat that she wears at the uh, the ice rink in the novel. Um, and of course, this completely changes by the time of the film. So it shows kind of different agencies that are going on, as well as the updating of the clothes themselves and what's available uh, to them. Um, but you find with the Bond films that aren't drawing upon the Fleming novels, what you find is there's either less description of dress, you know, so there's very little description of clothing or dress in Roald Dahl's script for You Only Live Twice. Um, but you also then with the later films that aren't directly adapting uh, from novel to screen, um, less description of the clothes. I wanted to ask more sort of broadly, where did your interest in looking at the films from the point of view of costume and obviously also gender and identity. Where does that come from for you? What's your background and, and research interest that led you to this point? Okay, so my um, undergraduate degree was in costume design. Um, so I spent three years realising that I couldn't sew very well. Um, and although I could draw, I, I probably didn't, you know, <laughs> want to put the effort into actually developing my career into um, that particular sector of the industry. Um, partly because you have to sort of understandably start from freelance from the bottom up and be able to sew in order to do that. And I cannot sew. So yeah, so yes, that, that was that. That's but I always true. retained my... <laughs> <laughs> not to the level that they'd want me to be able okay. to do that um you know and also those those like industrial machines they really scare me you know because they move so yeah. fast and they make a lot of noise uh, mm. you know, a, a personal sewing machine and having like a whole year to make an item clothing is fine you know one mm. you know having to actually you know and the other thing as well you know one of the things that we used to do when I was doing my degree is we you know worked on theatre productions and things like that um, and you'd have to stay up to, you know, two at the morning, you know, washing all the clothes and ironing everything and putting it back ready for the next day. And that's fine, you know, mm. but you've also got to have a lot of energy and stamina for that kind of thing. Um, and I'm quite lazy. So, you know, I like sitting on my bum all day, reading and writing about things. So I don't think I could have done that as a career. Um, but I, you know, I, I still retain my interest in costume and fashion. Um, but I realised if I could, you know, write about it, you know, sit on my bum all day and research it, that's fine. You know, that's something I could do. Um, and then in terms of the actual book itself, um, my PhD actually had nothing to do with, you know, James Bond whatsoever. Um, there's a couple of little bits of mention of, of costume and fashion in there. Uh, my PhD was on Hampton Court Palace and its relationship with film and television. So, you know, there's mm. some stuff in there about costume exhibitions and things like that, um, mm. which is one of my interests. But the um, in terms of fashioning James Bond, um, I actually applied, there was a call for, there was like a competition that a publisher, uh, which I shall not name, rang. And they were just basically like... Um, it was for part of their fashion list and they were like, oh, you know, pitch your monograph proposal to us. You know, and this was while I was doing my PhD. And I thought, well, no one's written really significantly on James Bond and fashion and costume. You know, you've got plenty written on James Bond, particularly on, on gender as well, but you don't really have mm. much on fashion and costume. So I thought, oh, that, that's quite a nice idea. So I pitched it to them. And I didn't get very far. I didn't win, 
But um, I thought, oh, well, I like the proposal. I'd like to work this up once I finish my PhD. So I then sent it um, to, well, it was Ivy Taurus, and they commissioned the book, which was very nice. And then they got taken over by Bloomsbury. Um, so Bloomsbury ended up publishing the book. Um, but both my commissioning editors, uh, Philippa and Rebecca, were really, really lovely and helpful to me throughout the entire process of, of the book, from its sort of original proposal to its publication. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's how I sort of just came up with the idea. You know, and what's really interesting is the, you know, I think Laura's mentioned about how, you know, that there's not a lot of research going on in terms of fashion and costume, particularly in British cinema studies. I mean, we're a mm. tiny pool of people, and then the people that do then costume and fashion within that are tinier still, you know. Um, so Laura and I, of course, are very interested in it. And you've got people like Sarah Street and Sue Harper and, you know, Melanie Williams writing on these things. Yeah. Um, but there's not, a load of and Melanie Bell of course as well but there's not a load of us we're quite a small and select group within a small and select group in a sense but what's interesting from then when you flip it around to the Bond perspective there's hardly anyone writing about fashion and costume you've got Monica Germana's book of course which is also Bloomsbury uh, on Bond girls and fashion and it's a, it's a more theoretical uh, book than mine so it makes quite a nice companion piece uh, if people are interested in reading it but apart from that there's not really much and you've got what's interesting with that one is it's gendered in a different way so whereas there's a lot of women particularly in British cinema studies writing about costume and fashion on the Bond side of it it's actually men writing about it usually from a fan perspective so you know you've got Matt mm -hmm. Spazer and Peter Brooker's uh, podcast from Taylor's with Love and their book on you know, the, the Bond and tailoring has since been published as well. Um, you know, you've got, there's that kind of coffee table book on the Bond uh, suits um, that was published in 1995, which is a co-authored book. Um, and it was endorsed as well by Eon Productions. But it's interesting, that kind of flip, isn't it? So for costume and fashion scholarship, it's predominantly gendered in terms of women, a bit like costume in the industry is gendered these days. Um, but then the other way around for, for Bond, it's it's the male Bond fans that are interested in fashion and costume. That's not to say that women aren't, but it's just that those writing about it and publishing on it are men. Well, mm. um, I'm kind of co-writing a chapter on A View to a Kill with Nick Jones, who's a Bond scholar. Um, and uh, I'm... So it's my first try writing something about uh, costume. I I don't have access to any archives, uh, but I'm mainly just fangirling about Grace Jones and everything she wears in A View to a Kill and Aliyah. And I'm like, oh my God, this is pretty. Uh, so I really need to try and get, have a more sort of like, <clears throat> I'm an academic. <laughs> I should analyze something. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's really fun. Um, it's such a fun area of scholarship to get into. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And Grace Jones is brilliant. You know, I don't know if you've uh, read her autobiography yet, Laura, but yes, she's got yeah, some really I have. Yeah, <laughs> yes, she yeah. she does. Yeah, um, she is yeah. so great. Yeah, I mean, I suppose with the Bond films, you mentioned that it seems to be mostly um, men uh, writing about a lot of it, and it, I guess over the years there've been lots of there's been lots of writing and lots of criticism about the Bond films from a sort of gendered perspective and representation of women and, and all of that kind of thing. And the films are clearly made predominantly for a male audience. I don't know if that's fair to say. I don't know what, I don't know what, or am I, am I wrong? I know they're making it for just as many people to come and see it as possible, but they, they do seem to be very much, particularly these older films, 
they're very sort of male centric they're, yeah they're really gendered i mean i don't want to say i don't yeah. want to get like hate mail so <laughs> um but yeah a lot a lot of the older uh roger moore is is the, the master of the double entendre and i think his his films are, are a lot mm. of them are quite old-fashioned and um yeah know, <laughs> quite gendered although we get we do get some Roger Moore double entendre lines in this film. I mean, like you said, Luella, this is basically a Roger Moore film about starring Sean Connery. And there's some terrible lines. I might I might snip a few out and stick them in the podcast. Yes, but there's some really yeah. bad ones. Um <laughs> so so it's interesting that, that Luella, that you've you know, where does your interest in Bond come from? Have you always been a fan of Bond or was it because you wanted to do the costumes that you came to to look at the costumes that you came to Bond? Yeah, I've always enjoyed the Bond films. Um, I think uh, the first one that I saw was, it was a recorded off-air VHS tape uh, of Dr No, which is the the first James Bond film uh, that my dad sort of showed my brother and I. Um, You know, when it was a very sort of drizzly Saturday afternoon when we should have been going supermarket shopping and then we didn't. We watched James Bond instead. Um, And we enjoyed that. So then my dad was like, oh, yeah, yeah, next week we'll watch From a Show of Love. But, of course, what he didn't tell us um, was that there was actually more James Bond films and they were based on the novels. So when we we were watching From a Show of Love, I genuinely thought when he's, you know, in the Orient Express train carriage fighting... Uh, Red Grant, I honestly thought, you know, Bond's numbers up here. Yeah. <laughs> How is he going to get out of Because of the wonderful suspense that that scene has. Um, mm. And then, you know, and so, so that was really lovely in a way because, of course, people coming to it now, if they, they've already seen Bond films or they know that there's more than however many Bond films, they may not quite experience that suspense of the scene in the way I did, but it was, you know, it was really amazing. So, yes, I really love Bond films as well. So it was nice to be able to combine sort of two things that I really, really like into one. Hmm. And what did you mentioned earlier about No Time to Die? What's your thoughts on the... Um the costuming of the Daniel Craig films? Have you given that much thought? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting with Fashion James Bond because I was able to write about all of his films apart from No Time to Die because I think my book came out a few weeks before the film was, you know, released, eventually Mm. released in the UK. Mm. So, so, you know, and um, there's some really interesting stuff. Like, you know, um, because he wears Bryony suits for Casino Royale. Um, which is very much the decision of Lindy Hemming, who's still the costume designer at this time. And she was the costume designer for all of Pierce Brosnan films. So she kind of keeps with the continuity of that, even though you've got a new Bond. Um, and I find that just quite interesting in itself, um, the kind of power of who makes the decisions over what Bond wears. With Quantum of Solace, what became evident when I was reading through kind of reception, but also reading through newspaper articles published at the time and published sources, was that there had to be a change from Bryony to Tom Ford. Um, so because of that, then that's why they, they go with these Tom Ford suits. Although what's interesting with those suits in, in Quantum of Solace, I think, is they're still, they're not what we come to know as James Bond's Daniel Craig wearing in his later films. You know, they're still more like classically cut. And it's not really, therefore, until Skyfall, 
uh, where you really see, um, you know, Daniel Craig's agency coming out in the way he wants his Bond to dress. So again, they stay with Tom Ford as they do for the rest of his Bond films, but you do really start seeing how tightly cut these, you know, suits are. And what's really interesting to me is in a similar way to Moore, who also had agency over the way his Bond was dressed. Um, you know, I just wonder in 20 years' time, well, I don't think we even need to find 20 years, actually, um, whether people will be sort of saying about how dated the suits that Daniel Craig wears, particularly from Skyfall onwards. Um, I mean, I've already seen some pieces written by, you know, tailoring firms and things like that about, you know, how much they don't like Daniel Craig's Tom Ford suits. Um, so yeah. that's quite interesting. But it'll be interesting to see how that, that gets perceived later. And what you've got to remember with Roger Moore is in the 80s, he was often named by the British press as being one of the best dressed men, you know, in the 80s. So, you know, it's really... I mean, in the 80s, though, like, it sounds like a compliment. It's actually a double hand... It's actually a backhanded compliment. In the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, but it's just that kind of perception. And what's really interesting, what I found is when... You know, when the actor, the star, effectively has agency over the way they're dressed, their clothes do tend to date in a different way to when it's either the director or the costume designer who is sourcing these items of clothing. But also this this also links, I think, into, you know, the change between how costumes are sourced today. So up until 1985, which is, of course, Roger Moore's last bomb film, A View to a Kill, you know, they're employing tailors to tailor these items of, of clothing. Uh, for Bond on screen, but really then from Dalton, partly because of the amount of action scenes and the amount of suits that were used, they had to go with made-to-measure suits and with firms, menswear firms, that could produce these suits, you know, en masse, you know, um, especially as actors weren't necessarily available to be measured in the workshops, the tailoring workshops, you know. So you then obviously go on to get Brony with Pierce Brosnan and then Tom Ford, uh, from Quantum of Solace because they have the ability to to produce these items of clothing and the sheer amount needed. If there was, I mean, is there one particular, let's say across all the Bond films, if you were allowed to go to Eon and help yourselves to one item from the the cupboard, like what what piece of Bond clothing would you like to take home? Oh, that is, it's a brilliant question. Really difficult to answer. It's really good. On one level, I mean, I wouldn't want any of these to, to wear myself, <laughs> but, you know, being able to, like, have, you know, Ursa Andress's iconic bikini would be pretty cool, I think, um, particularly mm. with the whole kind of history of, of how that comes about. Um, that was you know, really interesting to read in your book, actually, the, the making of that costume. Mm. And, like, the, the belt was just some passing sailor who <laughs> gave them his belt. Yeah. The it wasn't this, yeah, that was amazing. I thought it had all been, you know, specially made, but then it turns out that she had to use her own bra. Uh, that's just amazing. Yeah, it is, um, isn't it? You know, there's some wonderful costumes. It's one of the things with just researching costumes, you know, Laura and I were talking about archives earlier, is, you know, the, the thing is with fashion and costume, it's like piecing together a jigsaw, but not having all the pieces available because this stuff rarely ends up inaccessible repositories or archives you know a lot of it's owned by private collectors or eon have got it or have bought it back rather you know Mm. so it is difficult so you do actually have to therefore look at anecdotes as well so in like you know um in autobiographies and stuff 
um, which is quite interesting. And of course, the, the difficulty for the historian of that is then testing it against other sources we can see to see whether it's accurate. I mean, Eunice Gayson tells some really interesting stories. Mm. You know, the, when you read her biography, you can tell it's kind of, you know, it is embellished, you know, um, that for, you know, but the, the, there are grains, certainly grains, if not more than grains of truth in, in what she says, you know, mm. when you test it against other evidence. And I was quite lucky, actually, talking of primary sources with, with Dr. No, because, of course, Film Finances has this very rich archive and they do have a, a whole box file, two box files on Dr. No. Um, so I was able to, with that film, chase through where the costume expenditure was going, which was very interesting, mm. um, which unfortunately was something I wasn't able to test the other films because I didn't have access to those materials um mm. but that's another source that was particularly amazing during my research Laura what would you what would you take home uh right okay so in A View to a Kill there is this outfit that Maydee by Grace played by Grace Jones wears at the I think she's at the races or something it's black and it's ridiculous um it's like it kind of looks like a, a medieval knight's helmet or something but it's like this black satin kind of um flowing coat with like the hood the inside of her hood is red it looks like a labia yeah actually a lot of the outfits she wears in that film look like a labia um but it just like it's just this black mm -hmm. thing with these red folds and i think she she said she might have she like she does that she either didn't design it herself but she she kind of designed it in collaboration with azarine alaya and she wanted to base it on like disney villains like maleficent and i think that's fucking yeah. awesome I want that. Um, I would. I would make it. I might make it. <laughs> I do. I kind of sew oh. as a hobby. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love all the stuff she wears, particularly. But that outfit definitely. And um, if I could have an accessory as well, I would quite like the uh, Argentinian love knot necklace that uh, Eva Green wears in. I think it's Casino Royale because uh, I think it's very pretty. I don't know if I'm allowed an accessory, but that's what I would have. That's what I would pick. Oh. <laughs> you can have what you like. We're making we're making this up anyway, so that's good. Yeah. I I'd go for Roger. I'd go for Roger Moore's space suit from Moonraker. I think <laughs> just to be perverse. Um, anyway. But yeah, just I had a lot of fun uh, reading the book, Luella, and um, and a lot of fun chatting about costume and Bond. I've learned so much, so much uh, that I did not know before. Like a lot of. There's a lot of detail um, in mm. kind of the research that you've done. And I think as well, it's a good resource, not only for Bond fans and Bond scholars, but just seeing how you can write about film from the point of view of costume mm -hmm. is not something I've ever considered before. And obviously that's like a pretty wide field for people to go out and write about. So you've sort of paved the way for how that's how that can be done, which is really good. Thank you, and thank you to both of you for, you know, allowing me to burble on about bond and costume and fashion. Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me They can stimulate to tease me They won't leave in the night I've no fear that they might desert me Diamonds are forever Hold one up and then caress it Touch it So I'd like to thank Luella again for coming onto the podcast. I'll put links in the, um, the show notes 
for her book fashioning James Bond and also she's got a I don't know if there'll be a link available for it yet but as she mentioned in October she's got a new BFI classics book on um oh which one did she say from Russia with love from Russia with love or you only live twice I've forgotten now which one it was I think it was from Russia with love oh yeah anyway either way yes I think you're right um Either way, I'm sure it'll be really good. I'm looking forward to to that one. I really like. I've just been reading a couple of other BFI classics, those books, and I love how short they are. For one thing, it's quite nice to be able to read a book in a couple of goes. But they are. It's a great range of books. So anyway, that's really cool that she's done that. Um, yeah. So thank you to Luella, and uh, thank you all for continuing to listen to the podcast. Please do all the things that every podcast asks you to do please leave us a rating or a review or both um share us on social media try and help us to to find more people out there who would like to hear what we're doing um i have just been looking actually i was meant to mention laura that uh, i've been looking at where our listeners currently are and um the, um, the uk and america are where we're the most popular but our third highest number of downloads is in australia which is interesting yeah. so cool. if you're listening in australia please do get in touch yeah and, and uh, i maybe... promise i will not make any um really bad australian accented jokes <laughs> at all um we that is yeah i'm too we respectful that. for that no we don't do that no <laughs> uh but yeah maybe we should cover some australian movies i can think of a few already that i'd like to do um so anyway yes do get in touch with us uh twitter is the best place it's pretty much the only place yeah and if you and if you're if you're like me and you don't like the life admin of of doing reviews and leaving comments and things just a retweet (laughs) that generally works too that'll do yeah uh, yeah and also um we have had some uh, academics get in touch with ideas for films and and wanting to share their research yeah if you want to come on our podcast if you want to talk about your work um you'd be very welcome always looking for uh, because obviously there are films that we would like to talk about but we're much more interested really in hearing people talk about their own academic work um so it's you know so do get in touch if you've got a book or something you've written that you want to share with us we're always happy to uh, to hear what it is and uh i think that's probably it anything you want to say before we I would just like to congratulate you on yet another smooth ending to the podcast this month, Adrian. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. I'm doing my best. (laughs) Okay. uh, Thank you, everybody. And we'll be back again next month, hopefully. Bye. Bye.